Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Who does George Magnus listen to? He listens to Leland Miller. Miller has come out of Washington and Lee University and carved out a career as the absolute definitive microanalyst of China. No one, and I mean no one, folks, does it better than Leland Miller of trying to figure out what rail traffic or what electric utility rates are doing to China and what it signals. So Leland, let me get right to it in your China Beige book. What do you see of interior demand dynamics across Great China? Well, one of the major problems, because the 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 last several months haven't been synchronized, since the beginning of the year, hasn't been synchronized with the Chinese economy shutting down and then most of the rest of the world shutting down after that, is that firms that have relied on export orders are doing really, really poorly right now, which means the coast. So the interior, you're seeing, you're seeing much better numbers right now in the interior simply because they're not ex- and, and they are banking on a domestic rebound, which you'll see as the as the Chinese recovery incrementally gets better over this year. So right now, China doesn't want to be relying on its interior provinces, but that's that's where the growth is right now, while the coast really feels some pain. Well, let's talk about Beijing, Leland. Really, really hard to get a read on what is actually happening on the ground in China at the moment. Some people have told me, watch what they do, not watch what they say. What they say is that they've got a small outbreak of COVID infections. What they're doing is cancelling flights and closing schools again. What's your read on things at the moment? Well, yeah, if you look at the numbers, it looks like this very micro blip that you see all over the all over the world, particularly the United States right now. Uh, but the important thing is it's in Beijing and Beijing has symbolic power for the Chinese Communist Party. So if they lose control of that city, then you have a potential political crisis on their hands in addition to, to economic repercussions. So what the government is doing is, is very much the opposite of what they were talking about doing a few months ago. When they started coming out of the COVID, uh, the COVID shutdown, they forced everyone back to work. It was a very aggressive move back. We're going to get everyone you know, back and running and you know, damn the consequences. But when it comes to Beijing, they're doing the opposite. They're being extremely careful. They're shutting everything down. They want to make sure that, that Beijing is not the center of a new outbreak for the symbolic uh, for symbolic reasons, as well as the fact that it's, 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 it's the major political uh, center of power. And Leland, one major political issue is the jobs picture. And we've heard from George Magnus that while the official rate of joblessness is about 5.9 percent, he estimated it at more at 15 to 20 percent. Is that accurate? Is that what your uh, figures are showing as well? Yeah, I think George, as usual, was right. Uh, you know, the problem here is that when you track employment in China, and look, the, the government gauges don't even try to get into it because they don't want to tell the negative story. But even when you do things like China Beige Book's uh, job job gauges, you have a problem in that firms typically report formal employment. And there's this floating migrant population that is in this set of uh, hiatus from, from being paid right now. Some are furloughed. They haven't been laid off technically, but they ha- some haven't been rehired back. When they get rehired back, you sometimes see a bump in the jobs number, even though they weren't laid off in the first place. So there's a very weird, opaque universe uh, that the Chinese will, will never announce, because if they came out with a number that said 15 or 20 percent, people people would lose their minds the same way if they announced, you know, 1 percent GDP growth. So these are the types of numbers that just, you just can't pay attention to. You know the situation is much worse, um, but you don't know what the exact numbers are behind the scenes. 
Leland, one thing that we are seeing is that the PBOC is planning to increase credit in the economy by nearly a fifth this year. This according to an announcement overnight. A lot of people saying this isn't enough. What's your take? Yeah, it's not enough, but there's a couple things going on. It's not just about the supply of credit. So when I look at our credit gauges, I'm shocked by what I'm seeing because you would expect the same type of liquidity rollout that you saw in the United States or in Europe. You're not seeing that in China. And and you could understand some restraint because they are worried about non-performing loans, but the levels are, are quite shocking. And we're going to have numbers on those uh, coming out next week, but you know, it's 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 looking pretty surprising. But the, the opposite of that is the demand mm-hmm. picture and the fact that a lot of firms aren't asking for loans right now. And when you have this reduced loan demand, it begs the question, why during this extremely trying time are firms not more desirous of loans? Is it because they don't like the the, the economic horizon? They're worried about uh, piling on loans during an uncertain economic environment? Is it because of other credit dynamics? So this is really the big picture. Yes, look at supply, but loan demand is going to be the absolute key thing to watch for the next three or four months. Leland Miller of China Based Book International, the CEO on the situation in China right now. Fascinating stuff. Kate Moore, BlackRock's chief equity strategist. Another central bank, Kate, doing a whole lot more and maybe still more to come. Can you tell me whether traditional valuation approaches matter anymore in a world dominated by monetary policy? Well, let me just say good morning and then also let you know that I think valuations at this point uh, are really tricky, especially forward measures of valuations. You know, no one at this point, analysts, companies, strategists, portfolio managers, has a great sense for what earnings will be in 2020 or in 2021. I've had people start talking about, you know, medium term trend earnings, and that may be fair, but I think we're experiencing a lot of dislocations in the economy and in consumption patterns, and it's pretty difficult to predict. So valuations, uh, you know, in and of themselves are a difficult way to make investment decisions. What I will say is on a cross-asset basis with all of this QE, with all of this policy support, with all this repression of yields, you know, uh, equities may look a little bit better. Kate, this is extraordinary. I agree with you. It's completely unusual times. But June 30 beckons. How will institutional buy-side money reset for July 1? I'm not sure we're going to have a giant rebalance after the second quarter. I mean, we always get excited about pension rebalances and flows and index rebalances when those times come, uh, and they never tend to move the market as much as we might fear. I think there's been a consistent rebalancing of institutional portfolios along the way. And, you know, people still are trying to figure out what to do with the second half of the year, let alone make big asset allocation shifts that will affect, you know, multi-year horizons. So uh, at this point, I would expect people to continue to ride, ride the risk wave a little bit, conscious of the fact that in the second half of the year, we do have another big a set of big risk factors. Um, Lisa just mentioned the election. I think that's something we're going to have to focus very closely on. There's going to be a lot more news out of D.C. over the next couple uh months and, uh, you know, a lot of posturing by both the Democrats and the Republicans. And I think that's perhaps going to shake the market a little bit at some point. Kate, I've been struggling with riding the risk curve at a time when people really are still hiding out. And some of the more defensive names, you're seeing this certainly with the tech stocks uh, and yeah. you're seeing this in investment grade credit. At what point will investors get conviction? What do they have to see to go further into risk? 
Well, Lisa, I feel like you're sort of asking at what point do we get a rotation into value into perhaps some of the lower quality stuff. The hiding out has really been in higher quality companies with good balance sheets, strong business models, with management teams that investors have conviction in and confidence in their ability to execute. And I think that makes sense. I mean, the trouble with what falls into value or what falls into the highly cyclical parts of the, of the market at this point is that some of it is structurally impaired. It's a much harder call whether we're talking about you know the next couple of weeks or the next couple of years. I think you have to be more selective. Mm. One of the ways that we've been talking about it is in, on, on my team is to go into the wimpy cyclicals. These are cyclical companies, if you want to make a rotation towards better global growth and better U.S. growth, uh, that also have the balance sheets and decent management teams. They may not be the cheapest in the cyclical bucket, but I think that they're the better bet. Kay Moore, always great to catch you with you. Kay Moore joining us from BlackRock on some of the cyclicals out there. John Farrell, Lisa Bramowitz, and Tom Keener. What we know is Ed Bastian of Delta... Always, at every moment, we'll listen to Robert Crandall. He's in his 84th year. Mr. Crandall is without question the spirit of the American aviation industry, and he's also someone who's been brutally frank. He is iconic for telling American Airlines employees they need to understand that you don't invest in airlines. You just have fun working for them, and we're thrilled that Mr. Crandall could join us this morning. Bob Crandall, this has been an exogenous shock that your industry has never felt before. What is the best practice for the American aviation industry to extract themselves from this pandemic? Well, Tom, I think the airlines, are, all of the airlines have done, <clears throat> have done pretty well. Uh, they're all, there's quite a, by the way, there's, there's quite a nice recap in this morning's journal about what each individual carrier is doing. Uh, Delta, American, United, each one of them one by one, they're all working hard to try and persuade the public that it is safe to go back, that they won't get sick if they get on an airplane and take a trip. They go see grandma, they go see the grandkids, or if they go to, to, to a business meeting. Uh, the, the airlines obviously want the public to feel safe flying, and they're doing their best to make make that part. They're cleaning the airplanes very assiduously. Uh, they are reducing the point-to-point -point contacts within the terminals. Uh, and, they're, and they are increasing, and I'm glad to see this, they are becoming increasingly insistent that people wear masks on the airplane, which I think is a very important step. In any event, they're all working hard at it. And as Ed said uh, a few minutes ago on your show, I think everybody is hoping that by the end of the summer, uh, the public will feel a lot safer than they feel uh, have felt up to this point, and their business travel will therefore yeah. resume. Bob, the issue is what they have to do to make the public feel safe, and right now they're capping capacity on those planes at 60%. I just wonder, if you were running an airline again and had to cap capacity at 60% through year-end, what are the hard decisions you'd have to make elsewhere? Well, what, <clears throat> there, there, there are a lot of decisions you're going to have to make elsewhere, including how, how, how do you best reduce costs and conserve cash? After, after all, if, if you are capping loads and if you are not increasing prices dramatically, <clears throat> then obviously your cash flows are going to go way down. And what you've got to do is you, you've got to stay in the game. You've got, to, you've got to conserve enough cash so that you can get through this difficulty to and get to the point where we finally have a vaccine and people are finally able to go back to traveling 
the way they have in the past. <clears throat> That's a very difficult thing to do, and it's inevitably going to involve furloughs of some people, uh, perhaps voluntary furloughs, perhaps more part-time work. Each individual carrier, I think, is going to shape its response to cash conservation according to its own balance sheet and its own reading of what of what the public mood is. Bob, there's a question when you talk about business travel resuming, a lot of companies are realizing they don't need to do the same kind of travel that they had in the past. I'm thinking in particular of road trips with respect to selling IPOs or even just face-to-face -face meetings that now can be done via Zoom. How long do you think it will take before business travel gets back up to levels that we saw last year? Do you ever think it will? Lisa, I'm not sure. I think and no, I, I don't think anybody's smart enough. I know I'm not smart enough uh, to tell you precisely how the business community will respond to the sort of suspension of travel that we've had and the use of alternatives, like like the alternative we are using this morning to talk to each other and talk to the public, but not be in the same place. I suspect that that will that will over time reduce the cumulative amount of business travel somewhat. How much is anybody's get? Uh, but I, I think it will be a long time before the airlines see as much business travel as they saw in, uh, in the pre-COVID days of late 2019, early 2020. Bob, always fantastic to get your unique insight on an industry that has really, really come under a ton of pressure over the last several months. Bob Crandall there, the former American Airlines CEO. What we'd like to do is have an important conversation now with a gentle lady from Utah. Vivian Lee is with Verily, uh, of course, a storied career in health academics and health medicine. We're thrilled Dr. Lee could join us in The Long Fix is her important book on healthcare and healthcare solutions in America. Dr. Lee, I can't have a normal conversation. Utah in the mountain states, down to Arizona, having a new epidemic of the pandemic. Give us an update on what Utah sees with the COVID virus. Great to be with you, Tom. And um, as you know, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, up until a couple of years ago, I was leading the University of Utah's healthcare system and uh, now really have been full of admiration for the way in which that state had has been managing uh, the crisis, really had been keeping it um, and has been among the lowest in the country. But as we're seeing now, you know, all across the country, places that we thought we're going to survive, you know, relatively unscathed. They're seeing these upticks in the COVID crisis. And it's just all the more important that we recognize that the, the guidance that we're hearing from our public health officials, we need much more testing. We need to do the social distancing and masking. Those are just ever more imperative now. No one is immune. I'm I have to ask the professional question and that one of the most piercing comments we had was with the chief radiologist at Mount Sinai on the virus. You are a radiologist. What have you learned about the inflammation around the chest cavity in this virus? What do you discern about how we can battle this virus, vaccine or no vaccine, in terms of the cavity of the body? You know, what is so striking um, about this virus is the fact that there are so many people 
who feel pretty good. They actually are relatively asymptomatic. And even though they walk around, they don't necessarily feel a fever, they don't necessarily have a cough, they actually are COVID positive. And we've seen uh, from the reports and the literature that they actually have findings on their chest CT scans. They have abnormal findings in their lungs. That that virus is affecting them, but they're not manifesting it in symptoms. And, and that's really, I think we're hearing just, just yesterday, the FDA issued a guidance that said, look, you know, none of these tests for COVID are approved for wide scale testing of people who are asymptomatic, but they acknowledged that that is going to be necessary, that we are going to need to test people who are asymptomatic and they actually provided templates for laboratories and for manufacturers to get that approval to be able to test asymptomatic people for COVID. And that's going to be a critical component of getting people back to work, getting students back to campuses. We're going to have to have a strategy because we're seeing from from taking the images, as you say, of people who actually feel fine that they are infected. And that means they are also infectious. They can spread that disease to other people. And we need to identify those folks and be able to quarantine them to protect everyone else. Meanwhile, Dr. Lee, we have seen the resurgence in cases in places like Arizona and Texas and Florida with anecdotal accounts of the ICU beds getting filled up and a shortage being highlighted of general practitioners and ICU nurses. What do you see as some of the ways to fill that gap that is so sorely being reflected in this pandemic of general practitioners, of nurses who perhaps haven't been favored as far as a professional career because they haven't been as well paid? perhaps as some of the more uh, highly compensated specialists. You know, one of the things that the COVID crisis is laying bare is the fundamental shortcomings of our healthcare system. You know, we were such, we are a fee-for-service healthcare system, meaning that our healthcare hospitals are designed to focus on things that generate fees. And as soon as those fees start going away, like the primary care clinics, like all of the, the hospital beds that were not caring for COVID, we had to lay people off. Uh, the April data showed we laid almost one and a half million healthcare workers off. Last month was a little bit better. 300,000 were rehired, but that's still almost 1.2 million healthcare workers. And, you know, the majority are nurses and also dentists as well as physicians. And that's just a tragedy because the people who are being laid off are exactly the folks that we need to care for the most vulnerable. We see that yeah. the people who are, you know, across the country and they're the ones we need to get back into work. Now, Vivian Lee, I need to be in the timeout chair of Dr. Lee because we spent no time on your wonderful book, The Long Fix. We will have you back on soon to talk about an important book, folks, on what actually can be done to begin to fix this amazing and a mess, the American medical system. Vivian Lee uh, with us this morning, the author of The Long uh, Fix. Rudiger, thanks so much. Now, President Trump asked for China's help to win re-election. That's the allegation made by John Bolton in his tell-all memoir. The White House is seeking an injunction preventing the former national security adviser from publishing the book. Now, the president's campaign team dismissed the claim as absurd. But he broke the law. Very simple. I mean, uh, as much as it's going to be broken, this is highly classified. That's the highest stage. It's highly classified information. 
Well, that was the president himself. Now joining us is Craig Gordon, our Bloomberg Washington, D.C. bureau chief. Craig, great to have you on Bloomberg surveillance. When you look at what the allegations were, does it actually move the polls as we get closer to the election? Or do the people that support President Trump not care about these allegations? I mean, look, people who support President Donald Trump are pretty dug in, and I think we're going to see many, many thousands of them this weekend when he does his first rally in a long time in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. we can talk about that in a minute. So, yeah, it, it's going to take a, a lot to shake some of the more, um, the sort of the true believers around, uh, you know, who still think Donald Trump's doing a great job. I do believe there's a small but important kind of section of people who took a chance on Trump in 2016 and perhaps are growing a little bit tired of some of the um, of some of what they're seeing, whether it's the tweeting or in the case of what John Bolton is alleging, you know, essentially selling out um, U.S. foreign policy to help himself get reelected, which is Bolton's allegation. So those are serious charges, and I think serious-minded Americans would, would look at him pretty, um, you know, as an important piece of evidence as they decide whether to vote for Donald Trump. Craig, thank you so much for joining us today and thrilled that you're with us. And folks, I can only say that Craig is in the absolute crosshairs of the micro debates that we have every day on our Washington coverage. He did that by leading over from Politico a million years ago. We really helped invent uh, Politico. Craig, I want to ask you a Politico type question, which is I understand that the Bolton Papers is an inside the beltway phenomenon. How outside the beltway is this, or is this just something you're going to talk to 12 people about at that bar in the basement of the Hay Adams? Well, if I could get to the bar at the basement of the Hay Adams, I would love to have that conversation. But right now I'm in the basement of my home uh, in uh, suburban Washington. <laughs> so there's that. There's that to start with. But look, uh, Tom, it's a fair question. I mean, a lot of these things become, you know, the sort of the tempest in a teapot here in D.C. Uh, Beltway insiders, using air quotes there, you know, love to, love to chew on this stuff. I actually think so. One answer to your question is, yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. I, I actually think Joe Biden has some work to do here. Um, he has to find a way. Obviously, the, the, the Democrat running against uh, Donald Trump in the fall, he has to find a way to take you know hundreds of pages of kind of Washington insidery uh, stuff and 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 form it into a very sharply formed charge against the president, which is you know. Oh, come on, uh, Craig. Know. Craig. Okay. Well said. Totally well said. We have an allegation, folks, and I'm going to speak in, a, in an offhand manner here, of the president of the United States telling the leadership of China that concentration camps in Western China are in some way appropriate, whatever the language was, the niceties don't matter. Are you telling me Vice President Biden can't work with that? Well, we're going to find out, aren't we? I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, a criticism a lot of Democrats have, have of Biden is he's not terribly light on his feet. Um, and, you know, he does have a little bit of trouble sometimes sharpening these attacks. We saw it during the debates uh, when he was debating his fellow fellow Democrats. What I personally think these books do is they're just another, like, Please. sort of brick on the pile. Like, there's another sense that Donald Trump maybe isn't up to the job of being president, according to these allegations. Or maybe, you know, he is doing uh, some side dealing with four leaders that that you know a president probably shouldn't be dealing with like uh, Xi or uh, you know Erdogan there in Turkey and I don't know if most Americans could give you the details of this I think most Americans have a sense something is amiss and it's just another thing that's amiss on top of all the other things that they maybe questions they have about Trump and in that way I do think this kind of breaks through maybe not in a detailed way but in a very general way that adds to the sense that that you know it, you know the question they might have if Donald Trump's up to the job of president
Well, Craig, does, you know, does the average voter in November actually think about foreign policy? So you're giving us a sense of what they think about the president that may influence their vote. But what will they actually vote on? Is it the economy? Is it the handling of COVID-19 and their jobs? I mean, it is true. Almost every U.S. presidential election with, you know, maybe a few around the wartime, I would say Bush in 04 after 9-11, um, you know, got some got some some of his reelection based on the fact that he, had, you know, he had kind of handled that situation. But no, American voters are worried about the economy, kitchen table issues. Can I feed my family? Do I have a job? Is my job stable? Do I have health insurance? All of those things. That's where elections are won and lost. I think in, in America, I think for Trump and for Biden and for Trump, there's an added question question around, you know, to be really blunt, the Democrats' questions of whether Trump is, like, his fitness for the presidency. And I think that's, it's such a cosmic issue that, it's, again, it's hard to sort of talk about it or get people to think about it in a really specific way. But I think in these very general ways, you know, should the president be tweeting? Should the president be calling people liars and losers and all that stuff? Should he be, you know, going on TV and, you know, and saying sort of uh, colorful things about his opponents? I think those things are starting to kind of weigh on the president. We see his poll numbers right now, to the extent we still believe the polls after 2016. He's losing by about eight points to Biden nationally. That's going to narrow. This is a 50-50 country, and it's going to be a 50-50 election. I think in the end, it's going to stay pretty close. But there is a sense of sort of fatigue with Trump. You know, people talk about it's sort of wearing on people, the daily drama, the constant, you know, sniping, the whole thing. I think Joe Biden, for some people, might just look like a, a pleasant break um, from, from what is essentially a, a day-to-day soap opera that every American voter has to live with. Craig, thanks so much for the briefing. Craig Gordon there are at Bloomberg, Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.